Welcome back, podcast listeners. This is Tony today, taking over the chair from Jamie. And I have a special guest today, who's uh, Dr. Peter Mavaratis. Mavaratis, sorry, sorry, Mav, as we all call him, Mav. Mav is actually our economist sitting on our investment committee as part of Evergreen uh, Consultants. And I'll just give you a bit of a background on Mav. Mav is a member of the Asset Allocation Committee and, uh, and a number of investment committees, including Kofkin Bonds. He provides macro and financial market analysis and regular commentary, along with contributions to expected returns, market valuations, portfolio construction, and strategic asset allocation analysis. Mav joined Evergreen in <coughs> December 2018. An investment professional with over 20 years of experience across the financial market spectrum, Mav was Chief Investment Officer at Bella Capital, Capital until March 2017. After a hiatus exploring the globe, he joined Evergreen in October 2018. Prior to this, Mav's position included macro strategist and head of research at Investor First Limited and Senior Investment Analyst and General Manager Equities and Research at IWL Limited, uh, Comsec. Mav is also Research Fellow at the Centre of Policy Studies, where he made key contributions to forecast of, uh, validation of USAGE, a dynamic uh, computable general equilibrium uh, model of the US economy. In addition to a Doctor of Philosophy, Mav holds a Bachelor of Commerce with Honours and Masters of Economics with Honours. He also holds a number of industry-level qualifications. Mav, welcome to the Kofkin Bond Podcast. Tony, thanks for having me along. Yes, and after all this time, it's actually nice to finally meet you face-to-face, yeah. rather than just over Teams and <laughs> yeah. all that uh, monthly Teams meeting. We're so it's been a dimensions. while. <laughs> we are, we are. You're a real human. And all those qualifications make me feel very ordinary. Oh, I think um, they're rather overstated, to be honest, but <laughs> they put them out there and that's what they are. No, they, they are, but uh, you can actually see uh, your knowledge come through on our monthly investment committee meetings and all, all your charts and data that you actually provide us all uh, to back up reasons why we are doing certain things in certain ways. So, so I thank you for that uh, too. So it's, it's been tremendous working with yourself and Angela um, thank you. in those areas. There's, there's a number of things that we're going to talk about today. Um, a lot of our clients have already, on a daily basis, hear my opinions of what I think is going on. And a lot of those opinions are actually formed from our investment committee meetings as well. So what I actually want to just touch on today is something which is um, you know, top of everyone's mind, and that's interest rates and mortgages in particular. There's uh, from a, if we're looking at a macroeconomic basis from Australia-wide, there's a lot of mortgage pain, there's a lot of finance pain going on in households at the moment. Uh, we have, you know, 10 interest rate hikes over the space of 11 months. We've, you know, which I've quite been open, how did they get it so wrong to start with? Um, that's caused a lot of household pain. Of course, school fees are going up. Uh, cost of living is going up, cost of groceries is going up, cost of utilities is going up. It's really putting a huge strain on household budgets. But if we can go back to, you know, how it all started, you know, from your perspective, you know, is raising interest rates the only way to curb inflation? But that's that's my first question to you. Okay, well, thanks, thanks for the introduction. Look, we had a situation with COVID that ultimately resulted in a supply shock when we 
basically shut down economies, and that was very difficult. And we saw you know, phenomenal um, uh, you know, scenes, really, in the sense that cities were completely ghost towns, completely deserted. Horrifying. No one to was think around. About it. Yeah. Um, you know, important um, parts of our. Uh, logistics chains were effectively dislocated, completely um, severed in some ways. And, and then we compensated people, uh, as of course you should. Um, and in some instances, you might argue there were overcompensations uh, and there was a great deal of spending. And initially, with economy, with economy sorry, shut down, that spending was focused uh, on goods. And so we saw escalating... Um, goods inflation because supply was so limited yeah. uh, for a period of time um, and over time that kind of began to work itself out but as as economies more fully reopened the supply side uh, got hit and what you need um, on the services side sorry is a lot of people <laughs> to do a lot of things to answer to you know phones and to you know run utility businesses etc and they just weren't there and the result of that, of course, was escalating prices. And uh, you know, what we had, and we, you know, we, we, we had a number of policies, and one of them uh, was a term funding facility where the Reserve Bank made available several billion dollars at just you know 0.1%, uh, and certainly no higher than 0.25%. Yeah. And that was over a period of three years. And as a result of that, there was a strong incentive um, to lend on a shorter basis at this very low rate. And we saw a series of, um, you know, people, you know, get loans at crazy interest rates, rates that you and I from our era could only dream of, you know, 1.84% and even less in some instances fixed for, you know, a couple of years. Uh, which must have seemed, you know, just like a dream. <laughs> well, it is, uh, for me, the average interest rate was always 6%. And it's, I, I still remember having the conversation with my dad when I went to buy my first property. And it was, um, and he said, son, make sure you can repay the loan in five years. You know, typical European yeah. after World War II. <laughs> so it was, um, it's pretty quick. and I said, well, then I can't borrow <laughs> enough money for the house I actually want. He goes, your first house will not be your forever house. Uh, so just think of it as you know the that you can repay it in five years. And I said, well, maybe I could borrow a bit more. And he said, think of it this way too: you're self-employed. What happens if you have a bad year? If you got a 25-year loan, as that was the maximum you can get back then, you can't push it out to 26 years. You can't say to the bank, "I'm just going on a holiday." Um, but if you have a if you have a 25-year loan that you're paying off in five years and you have a bad year, you can push it out to six years. Yeah, it's not an issue. So. And he said, and the quicker you own that, the quicker you got equity, the quicker you can move up to something else. And yeah, that's, that's my dad's philosophy. And, and it's also, you know, it's it's gone over well even in here uh, when we decided eight years ago to rebuild this firm again. Um, I've, in 30 years in this industry, I've never had a business overdraft. So I've never had to go to the bank and ask for money to pay Jamie's wage, as he said. <laughs> so it's, so it's, uh, but the, these, are, these, these are the things where I think, as you said, we, we, I, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think we've we've had this conversation before, Matt, but there seems to be an entire generation that haven't seen it tough, that they they thought 2% was going to be the normal forever or maybe 3% maximum, but they haven't actually seen it tough. So they have gone and overextended yeah. and into properties where those properties might not even be holding the same value as they were five, three years ago. Is that a fair call? I think it's a very fair call. And 
when you combine that low interest rate environment that, that was the right thing to do at the time with the very strong fiscal stimulus, which was, which was also the right thing to do at the time, perhaps it lasted too long. Um, and you know, then we had the unfortunate guidance from Philip Lowe that there would, you know, wouldn't be a rate rise before 2024. Now, kind of six months. He, I think the last time Philip made that statement was November of 2021. Yes. And um, about six months before that, when we were putting out our guesses, and they are just guesses really yeah. as to where interest rates would go, our view was that you'd probably see the first rate rise at the end of 2022. And some, I always make a rod for my own back with these things. I said, Melbourne Cup seems as good a time as any yep. to, 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 you know, to lift rates by, say, 25, and then we'll see where it goes from there. Now, that was, you know, obviously 18 months before that period, but quite a dramatic move in, in May, of course, of 2022, where... We got that that rate hike, and markets were really shocked, and people, you know, were spitting chips because a lot of people made decisions based on that call, um, and were able. Their borrowing power was quite phenomenal at the time, and so housing prices were quite um, elevated still, and so people, you know, incredibly highly leveraged, buying an asset that was arguably overpriced relative to history, relative to income multiples. Etc. Suddenly they're they're set (laughs) in a market that they're probably maybe already in negative equity um, as a result of that. I think Uh, also especially some of those people who borrowed money against the equity in the home to go and make a sea change and buy a country property or a, you know, so I remember Jamie who's from Murderford was saying how much you know, Murderford and Bright and all the surrounding areas have just exploded the prices because people were thinking that, well, listen, I can work from home. This just proves that I can work from home. And we've got a lot of companies at the moment who are saying, yeah, we're not a work-from-home firm. No, yeah. You're coming back to the office uh, now as well, so we pay rent for you and you're coming back here. We work more efficiently as an organisation. So yeah. So with, with that, I mean, where does that, especially with a lot of these interest rates going off these very low fixed terms this year uh, and, you know, into next year as well, where does that sit for things like housing prices right now? I mean, because every time a house is sold, someone's bought it. So where, where does that sit for housing prices you know, moving forward yeah. over the next 12 months? <clears throat> Well, in many instances, um, and we've, you would have read in the media, and I'm sure the listeners would have seen somewhere, this idea of a um, fixed rate mortgage cliff. And this is where those uh, fixed rates roll off into potentially variable rates, which are, you know, going to be at least four, uh, you know, percent higher than what they were borrowing at. So if you borrowed at two percent. And you and you were to take a loan on today, you probably would have to pay at least six percent, and that's the discounted uh, variable rate. So, but on the um, on the average mortgage going around, that's an extra forty thousand dollars after tax. In well, some cases, well, yeah, for a mortgage. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so if you've got they, a if you've got a million dollar loan, yeah, these are non trivial. Uh, changes that you'd be incurring. So if over that period you didn't use that to accumulate a savings buffer, um, well, you better hope you hang on to your job. And the, the great thing about what we have now is we have a relatively tight jobs market. We have very low unemployment. Now, I know the, you know, the, the world is different from you know, the, the 19, early 1970s yeah. when, when people like to make sort of comparisons. But uh, well, unemployment in, was rampant then. 
Yes. Sorry, unemployment was totally rampant then as well. Oh no, not not in the low. No, in the early seventies, unemployment was actually quite yeah, low yeah. before those OPEC. Uh, yes, you know, the OPEC crisis. oil crisis. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. people say, well, you know, we've moved back down, you know, well below four percent. Yeah. Um, but the world has changed. You know, the the, the structure of the, the workforce has changed. More women work. Uh, young people seem to be working multi multiple part time jobs, yeah. often from home. Sometimes people, you know, running little you know businesses even out of their garage. Yeah. Um, and that kind of didn't happen as often. You'd hear about it. You know, well, we started. Um, you know, Apple or whatever, Macintosh, you know, in someone's, <laughs> and here's Steve Jobs and yep. uh, the other and Mr. and Mrs. Jobs' garage, yeah. young Steve was out the back, yeah, yeah tinkering yeah. with some and toys. That, yeah. that's, that still happens, but, but now it's kind of even more commonplace uh, just because people are, everyone seems to have a side hustle. And I think if those side hustles first were to go by the wayside and if people were to, to lose their main source of income, uh, well, they would be doing it very tough, and we haven't really seen any forced sales yet mm. in the housing market, or not too many. Yeah. Uh, once they start to well, not come forced, through, not forced sales by the banks, but maybe forced sales by the household because yeah. of the budget. Well, this so, is where yeah, I'm trying so, to get to. Yeah. So. so not 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 in the press. You know, the bank made me sell my house. Yeah. No, no, that's right. And in yeah. fact, the provisioning that that the um, that the banks. Uh, are running at the moment for bad and doubtful debts is still relatively low, and the experience that they're reporting uh, up until you know the, the end of February, uh, from comments that I've heard from some of the CEOs, Matt Common, uh, of course from from Commonwealth Bank, um, they're, they're still seeing kind of you know reasonably non-stressed yeah. borrowers you yeah. know, in their in their loan book. So I think that's that's a positive sign, but that can change very rapidly and come May when people's disposable income suddenly uh, is more dramatically been shifted towards debt repayments yeah uh, that's that's going to be a problem with the you know there, there's there was talk it, it didn't go through where for example the uh, the tax changes that are due in June this year uh, so the, the final of the stage three uh, Australian tax changes uh, there was uh, Labor tested the water and quickly retreated in regards to not proceeding with those tax changes. So that might give a little bit of sigh of relief to some people. Uh, but in saying that, though, there's other areas where Labor are currently looking at tinkering with tax. You know, that once again, the, it comes up every election, you know, just after every election is, do we charge capital gains tax on the family home? Or do we abolish... Um, negative gearing, you know, on investment properties and things like that as well. In this macro environment that you have at the moment, because they've already come through with a prospective change for superannuation, doesn't affect too many people. I think it only affects 88,000 people. But I did hear, though, there's one super fund in Australia that has a member balance of $540 million. I just assumed that was Gina Reinhardt. <laughs> that's, that's, no, I don't know if it is, yeah, by the way. Yeah, I, no, just, no, I, I just thought, speaking. wow. That is one decent-sized superannuation fund, yeah. but it's, um, but you know, she 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 might have inherited that and in all the shares. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's a very place. bold yeah. assumption by but, me. <laughs> so I don't wish to. But the thing though is, like, but they're charging CGT and an unrealised asset there. That so it's not just charging when the asset is sold; they're potentially looking at charging it. So, in this macro environment, can you see bold changes happening? 
prior to the next federal election, which is still, you know, another two years away, two and a half years away. I would say it's highly unlikely. That's what I would have thought, yeah. And uh, and I'm, I'm certainly not a political strategist, but yeah. I think it's not hard to figure out that, you know, politicians seek power and when they achieve power, they want to stay there. They also they want to implement their, their view of the world and, and, yeah. and make the changes that, you know, effectively is what their base expects from them, but they won't do that at any cost. Uh, and, and often they run the risk of losing, you know, large, you know, swathes of people who would otherwise vote for them if they, if they felt they were getting hurt by the policy mix. Uh, I think in this case, uh, is that the phase three uh, tax cuts that are coming in, I thought that was, um, was that this year or next year? I can't quite year, remember. Thought, it might be this year. Yeah. I thought it was. If you're going to, I haven't provide, factored it into my budget. By yeah. the way, well, if you're <laughs> so, going so, to, yeah. if you're going to make, if if that's going to go in in the form yeah. uh, that was originally, you know, legislated uh, or, or, or put, you know, to the parliament, I think that, um, you know, if we do have price pressures, I'm not sure you want to be providing an added stimulus at a time that you're worried, at least, uh, you know, out loud that inflation is an issue. Mm. So the, the RBA, uh, in its statement of monetary policy, which came out a few days after, so this would be the February one, mm. a few days after the, the February interest rate decision, uh, doesn't see inflation getting back to 3%, which is the top of its band, which is 2 to 3%, until 2025. Okay. Um, so if you're going to provide some additional spending power, you could argue that maybe now's not the right time, even though people are struggling. The RBA wants, strangely enough, people to struggle. We talk about demand destruction. That's really just code word for increased unemployment, which is not great from a societal yeah. perspective. But if people are saving less and spending more, which is really what's happened um, in that period, you know, since COVID, um, you know, the, the, the RBA has one tool it's a hammer and in that instance pretty much everything looks like a nail and and i'm not sure what the interactions are they're supposedly an independent uh, organization um established way back in 1959 yeah <laughs> basically yeah but effectively if you've got loose fiscal policy uh but tight monetary policy and we certainly we're we're if you ask me i think that we're well and truly above a neutral rate at the yeah. moment for the Australian economy. Um, and if, if I were running the show, which I'm not and which I'll never be, I, I would have made the, the November rate hike the last and I would have waited. Yep. And waited yeah, you did say that in the see. assessment committee meeting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would have stopped. Yep. Uh, that's where I would have kind of, you know, wait for these lags to come through. Let's see what happens with the, the fixed rate clear. Well, we did see inflation drop. Uh, well, in the monthly numbers, that's right, yeah. the monthly numbers. We so, did, yeah. so what we got, um, the, 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 the we still had a February rise, but we did see the numbers drop. Yeah. yeah. So we, it looks like inflation has peaked, which is what we anticipated would be the case. Fingers um, crossed and toes crossed. Yes, we hoped. Yeah, yeah but if so, you yeah. but if you look at the belly of yeah. inflation or underlying inflation, they and the, the RBA looks at the trimmed mean. Yeah, um, that's not really showing. Can you explain what signs. trimmed means means? Yeah. yeah so so what they're doing is is they're taking 
effectively they're removing i think it's a top either 14 or 16 percent of yeah. the, the price contributions and the and the bottom 14 and 16 percent so yeah. effectively you have the real core yeah. of inflation it's a bit different to what they do in the us so when they talk about core inflation there they're simply excluding things which historically are volatile yeah. which is um, food and energy here we tend to do things a little bit differently um, because there are periods where there are other factors, not food and energy, that can be quite volatile, that are throwing the numbers around. Yeah. Um, the, one of the interesting things is that there is quite a lag before the imputed rents component goes through the inflation numbers. Um, and so this rental crisis that we're going through now, um, and we are seeing quite a steep uh, increase in rents, that's not going to really hit the CPI until much later this year, if not next year. Okay. So we think um, that inflation is going to be sticky downwards overall. And we've talked about, in very specifically in regards to the US and Europe, we've talked about um, core inflation being sticky downwards. So we felt the headline number would fall more rapidly than what the, the core would, yeah. uh, which in fact is is what, what has played out. And we've you know, had some surprise numbers early this year, which have been well ahead of expectations. And in fact, if you add to that, that you've seen a number of uh, upward revisions to last year's numbers towards the end of the year, where we thought that we've seen some signs of, you know, disinflation and and in in one instance, you know, some months we had small negatives, they've all been revised away now. Um, So central banks are right to be worried about it because that's their main main objective is to control inflation and not let inflationary expectations get out of control. And I I don't think they're out of control, by the way. Um, But um, if that were to happen, then it becomes a more difficult proposition. In the early 90s, um, when we saw, you know, rates get jacked up to astronomical levels, I think inflationary expectations by consumers were, were you know, 10 plus percent, whereas that hasn't been the case. Yeah, yeah, interest in rates up as high as 17 at that stage in the early 90s. That's yeah. right. Yeah, shocking, mortgages, shocking yeah. period. Yeah. Recession we had to have that's was right. the, the Keating. Yeah, the Keating, uh, famous Keating quote, year I joined the industry, uh, which is great because when you start in something and it's really bad and hard, you just think that's normal. So everything, oh. so everything you just yeah. grow from there. So... With the, if we sort of pivot though, if, if we pivot there from say, and it still affects Australia, but if we pivot to the US here, uh, so we were talking, because we, we, we invest globally, obviously, um, uh, when we manage our clients' funds. With the US at the moment, and we've had uh, being political, um, the US, you know, is potentially bankrupt right now. So they owe a lot of money. So it's, um, and they're always having to raise the, the ceiling and the cap, the debt cap as well. So, I mean, I know that's a, that's a huge word that I just used. But one of the questions I have is that there seems to be this continued, um, you know, no government, no matter what color tie they wear, is going to take away the social services packages that are available. Uh, you, you don't have something in and then take it away. It's, it's death for any political uh, party. On that basis, the US obviously they're you know increasing their debt ceiling. They've um, 
Uh, when Trump came into power, he you know, he slashed corporate tax rates. That spurred on the economy, spurred on employment. There was a lot of positives that came out of that. Um, but now they're talking about with interest rates rising and obviously with the potential of corporate tax rates or new tax rates for wealthier individuals as well. There's states over in the US like California and you know they're really uh, suffering uh, their financial packages. Companies that were growth companies, so this is where I'm getting to, sorry. Companies that were, were, that were growth companies, a lot of them listed on the NASDAQ, had huge amount of debt, low interest rates. You know, even if you say looking at Netflix as an example, if you've got the double whammy or the perfect storm of interest rate rises, uh, so for debt repayment, and corporate tax rate hikes, and their dividends or their profit not even being able to cover that, where does that put a lot of these heavily indebted companies that were growth companies and were the darlings of the stock market, you know, Netflix as an example during, you know, COVID, uh, where, where do you actually place them? It's a bit of, it seems to be for my behalf, a bit of a, a bit of a sort of perfect storm brewing yeah. that could potentially uh, bring down a lot of these companies. Well, I might just roll back a bit and, yeah. and make a comment about governments yeah. being bankrupt or potentially yes, defaulting, yeah. etc. I don't think they'll default, but you, yeah, but they they've got a lot of debt. Well, if they default, yeah. it would it would be, and I'll, I'll take a step back from this, but it, it'd be something of their own doing. Yes. So, what do I mean by that? So, in, in the US, the US, you know, issues debt so through the Treasury. It's in US dollars. You know, they're not issuing in Australian dollars or yep. euros, etc. It's in its own currency. They have a monopoly on its currency, etc. Technically. Um, they don't have to default. Now they might in practice, because they felt that their productivity of their economy had collapsed or something, and they, they felt that, well, if, if this is going to be like this, we can technically make the payments, mm. but it's best not to, because if we don't default, I'm putting that in inverted commas, yeah. it will destroy our exchange rate, Yeah, um, which would then have other you know, factors, uh, impacts that, that, you know, like when I talk about huge downward movements, for example, I don't see that happening. In the US, they have an artificially imposed debt ceiling. That debt ceiling, um, you know, they come close to it every few few years and they need to increase it. Uh, And there are periods where they cannot agree where it should go and what, how high it should move to. And during that period, government can technically shut down and yeah. work what as a What happened during the last Obama term, didn't it? Government oh, yeah. shut down for Yeah, a, there, for there was a period, period yeah. I think, around January, and I don't remember the year, but it, um, where, yeah, where there was quite a long and prolonged yeah. um, shutdown. Now, that's not ideal for those workers who aren't getting paid, um, but ultimately an agreement, normally what happens, an agreement's reached yeah. and, you know, the debt ceiling moves up and life goes on for, you know, another two or three years until the, the debt ceiling's hit again. And in terms of, in terms of um, you know, what we're talking about companies who might be overgeared, yeah. and I'm not going to name any yeah, company yeah. specifically, yep. but when you have an, an era as we did after the GFC where you had what's called quantitative easing, and that's where um, central banks effectively buy these debt securities that are being issued by governments, such as their own, yeah. and they place it on their own balance sheet, on, on the central bank's 
balance sheet. By doing that, they're creating a kind of artificial demand for that particular security, which raises the price of that security, and often that pays at what we call a fixed coupon that never changes. And so if the price of that is going up and someone's willing to buy that stream of income in the form of coupons, well, then the yield that you're effectively, that's implied by that, is falling. And that's how they kept yields really low, and that was QE. So QE wasn't really creating money because money's more or less spent into existence. So if you want to create money, well, put it in the bank accounts of people with very high marginal propensities to consume, like the people, for example, in Australia who were on JobSeeker and they saw their JobSeeker payments, I think, doubled or something. Yeah. Um, And and they spent every cent of it and more. Absolutely. Uh, And and well, they might. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I don't blame them. Exactly. Um, You know, that's how you create money. But if that goes on for too long, I'm not saying saying for a moment that the JobSeeker recipients are the the underlying root of inflation because they're they're most surely not. But the QE process has to manifest in prices somehow. In that case, it it really manifested in asset price inflation as opposed to consumer price inflation. And now they're reversing that and they're reversing it by allowing those maturities to roll off the balance sheet. In other words, they mature and they don't uh, then rebuy the same instrument or some other yeah. instrument, um, and as that happens, effectively you're you're sucking liquidity out of the system, which makes financial conditions tighter and it makes it harder for for different groups. And and if people are worried about defaults, um, one of the things you'll notice is there's a credit risk premium or a spread. Yeah credit spread over and above a, you know, a sovereign bond or a government bond, which you think of as a risk-free instrument. And that premium is what a company would pay if it issued its own debt, which is much more popular thing to do in the US than, yeah. say, here in Australia. Though it does happen yeah. here, of course. Um, as those spreads move higher, the cost of funding and the cost of rolling over your debt goes higher and if you don't have a business <laughs> that's making revenue um you know and we're not talking about what happened in the lead up to the tech wreck where, yes yeah you know this even in more recent years post the gfc a bunch of companies um which i think christopher joy refers to as zombie companies yeah. companies that can't cover their their own interest costs effectively um, they start to go, you know, out of business. And in fact, I've recently seen that that's already happening this year in Europe. Yeah. And it, we've only had, you know, I think since the middle of last year, you know, official interest rate moves in Europe and increases, you know, in those in those credit spreads on top of that. Yeah. Uh, and it's already moved a whole bunch of them, you know, to, to effectively bankruptcy and closing down. So it could lead to a systemic event if it would happen all of a sudden at the moment um, I don't feel the market is paying enough attention to the potential upcoming default cycle yeah um, and I think the reason for that is it's still out on the horizon you know later this year at some point next year the market's still not convinced that there's going to be a recession um, you know in the US so in, at, at some point last year, say in the middle of last year, my my view was that you would see a recession uh, at the start of this year. Yeah, didn't happen. Not yep. doesn't, and it doesn't look like happening. Yeah. the economy got weaker um, in the fourth. In fairness, quarter. you did say a soft recession. 
I did. Yeah, so, but, so, you yeah. know, yeah. I, you, when you make those forecasts, you do, you know, make a rod for your own back at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I, but I, I still remember Chris Kane from BT when he was asked at a conference where he thought the Australian dollar was going, and it was like 47 cents of the US at the time. Um, he said, and he said, well, I think it'll go up unless it goes down, but every time I make one of these predictions, it's always the opposite that occurs. <laughs> so, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, but it, it is interesting, but you, you are talking about, you know, those predictions and and some of the things we can only go on the numbers and what the numbers push forward you know historically what would have happened if the numbers were to continue doing this well during the december quarter there were a number of economists and and kind of uh i don't know if they're really perma bears but people who were saying the u.s we're already in recession and they point to um home building which had completely you know collapsed (laughs) that sector was really under big you know um and they said, no, we're already in recession. Just look you know, here. And they would, you know, that's called confirmation bias, et cetera. Yes. Um, the US had a weaker um, December quarter, which we anticipated, and we thought it would continue to weaken this year. But at the beginning of this year, um, the world kind of changed. So towards the end of last year, um, we saw the sudden reopening of China, and that was that was a big, uh, if you like, uh, boost to sentiment, um, and, and that sentiment was increase was kind of widespread. It was really good for Australia in the sense that well, you know, we we export a whole bunch of iron ore and coal yeah. and different things to and they're slowly removing tariffs as well, which and, and is, yeah, and we're, we're getting yeah. on better speaking terms and we're not offending, you know. <laughs> Our key trading partner as much as we used to. Yeah. Um, and and on top of that, it always helps the economy, doesn't it? Europe, well, <laughs> and then of course Europe, um, which strongly uh, depends on China as an export yeah. destination as much as yeah. imports inputs from there. Um, you know, thought well, here's a great opportunity for us. I mean, not only have natural gas prices slumped back to kind of pre-COVID level, or sorry, pre-war levels. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we've got this situation where we can start selling stuff to this huge population again and, and our, our uh, you know, automotive uh, manufacturers can get off their knees again, Yeah, basically. So all of this resulted in positive sentiment all over the place and that was happening at the start of a year. And, and we were seeing, as they turned out to be false, of course, mm. you know, a much weaker um, inflation numbers that were subsequently... Yeah. Vice high, but at the time, no one kind of knew that. Yeah. Um, and so you had this almost Goldilocks scenario of, of immaculate disinflation, where inflation is going to go back closer towards the target, and, it's, and we, we can stop hiking rates soon, and the peak in the rates doesn't have to stay where it is for very long. And at the time, they well, were pricing well, in three rate saying cuts. That just not so long, a few weeks ago now. So it's a month or so ago now, uh, but they they one of their economists turned around. He said he believed in 2025 interest rates would start dropping dramatic. Was it 2025 or earlier? But he believed interest rates would there would be five interest rate cuts, and he came out and made it where no one else has actually made a prediction like that. So it was it was I'll find the article. I'll send it to you because yeah. I was I was 
you know, the, the eternal optimist in me said, oh, yeah. that's awesome. You know, so hopefully the one contrarian is correct. Yeah, but, <laughs> so it's, but, um, but if there were to be, I mean, if we step back from that, if yeah. there were to be five interest rate cuts, yeah. the only circumstances under which that would happen and in a hurry would be if there were a severe recession. Correct. Yeah. So, and, and historically, and we can talk about where markets might go or not mm. go, when, when you know rates are going up, when when they're listening very carefully, this is investors to what the central banks and you know governments are, are talking about in terms of inflation, yeah. in terms of what the policy responses are going to be, and they're listening for you know um, anything that will give them an indication that rates are going to peak in the near future or they're going to keep going further. So um, quite recently. Um, the, the head of the US Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, or Jay Powell, as mm. he's more often referred to, yeah. um, gave a much more hawkish speech than what markets had hoped for. And, and so the markets sold off. Yeah. Whereas two days later, they were saying, well, we think he's going to now pivot finally to a more dovish approach because we saw some weaker number come from somewhere else and they're focusing on 15 different things. But Short memories used to span over a few years. Now it seems to span over a couple of days. Well, <laughs> roll back to, to Australia's, um, like in, we, we got that high inflation read at the end of January. Yeah. Um, which was well above consensus. I think it was seven and a half percent was the guess um, by you know a variety of economists. That was the year-on-year CPI yeah. number, yep. the headline number. It came in at seven point eight, um, and the core number came in at six point nine. And 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 the RBA and the rest of the world seemed to be expecting six and a half. Yeah. And immediately they revised up and repositioned themselves in money markets to expect a higher you know, terminal cash rates. So it went from 360 to 385. And then you had the, the February rate decision and the commentary that came with that, which was quite hawkish, and that went to 410. And then you got the statement of monetary policy a few days after that. And markets were fully pricing at that point, uh, or just after that, for a 4.4% peak by September this year. Yep. Um, now, we're at the time we're having this chat, in, in within about... 10 days after that happened, um, markets are back at 410. <laughs> so they've gone yeah. back 30 basis points. And it's happened very quickly. And the only different data was you got one weaker unemployment number in the sense that there wasn't as strong uh, employment growth as had been anticipated in January. Yep. But that was strongly explained by unusual seasonal factors and and it was only a two-week survey yeah and everyone's on holidays and pretty much everyone who reported they're unemployed had a job to go to by yeah. the end of jan yeah so markets which is good yeah. are hopefully optimistic and that's that's what you're hopelessly optimistic yeah. sorry, which yeah. is which is good because yeah. overall over the long time over the long term i'm sorry markets do move higher so we will go through undoubtedly another large market drawdown Probably this year. Yeah. I don't, and again, I'm an economist, so I can't time anything. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I tell everyone that. Yeah. 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 If you think economists can time anything, you, you, you've got too much faith in them. We are the dismal science after all. You know, yeah. we, we can tell you there's going to be, you know, a recession and we'll get it wrong probably more often than we do. What do they say? Like, you know, the last of the six. The late, <laughs> the late, the late Rene Rivkin. 
he uh, he caused a, he called a market crash every single month, but eventually he would get it right. Mm. <laughs> so so, but but on that, I, I will in, in closing, I will ask you to do a prediction, which of course we're now well, your thoughts actually more than a prediction, which of course we're recording. We can always hold against you in years come in years into many years into. We'll, we'll, and that's we'll, not unreasonable. We'll share we'll share a beer in a de- <laughs> decade, and you'll say, did I say that? I said, yeah, it's recorded here. So, but we you, you mentioned, for example, the tech wreck before and the zombie company. And you know, prior to the tech boom in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and we had you know, put dot com beside your name with no business plan, and you got a 50 million dollar valuation overnight. And venture capital firms are throwing money at everyone. They were um, trading at, at multiples of revenue. Oh uh, yeah, and, and some of that revenue was non-existent. Ex- you know? Exactly right. Davnet's a classic example yes. where yep. the valuation and and I wasn't part of uh, this particular company visit a group that I was with yeah uh, basically figured out that for, for to justify the valuation in the early 2000s you know every Australian home would need to have you know like two internet connections or something and be downloading all this stuff and yeah you know, it just didn't didn't happen yeah. of course but with the with that and if we we look at the US of course it was it was huge but there's been I mean computers aren't new and I say it's just that this this phone here was Whereas, you know, there's more technology in this phone, you know, like a thousand times more technology in this phone than what there was when we brought, when we put man on the moon. So it's basically, it's, it's um, the scenario of obviously technology just gets better, better and better as years go on. Now, if you think of the, you know, the, the, you have the industrial revolution, but you also have the tech revolution. So out of that tech boom, of course, there are some companies today, there's, we always talk about the companies that didn't survive and that were rubbish. But there are companies that uh, did survive and have flourished. You know, Amazon, uh, Google, Facebook. They've all they all came out of that <coughs> at some at some form or another after that. Now, obviously, Facebook was a few years after. But the if we have a look at that, if we then have a look at mobile computers, so you know, between laptops, between your phones, um, etc. We go into the cloud. Uh, so you don't need these big massive servers. Uh, you know, sitting in your office, you go to the cloud. And now the big thing on you know everyone's lips is ChatGPT or AI, artificial intelligence. Now, it's got more news over the last few months because of ChatGPT, especially if Microsoft's sticking ten billion dollars into it for forty nine percent of everything. I think so. I think they own forty nine percent of the world when it comes to ChatGPT. But when it when it's um, when you actually have a look at that though, AI has been talked about and worked on for the last thirty years. It's nothing new. But where we've actually seemed to have got it to at this stage is where it's now being seen to be used in everyday life. So if you think computers were once the big things that IBM had that governments would go to, exactly right. So it's um, the you know the big massive boxes that basically but only governments could use them. Real to real. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, eventually we'll have ten punch com- cards. Eventually we'll have ten computers in the world. <laughs> so it's um. Or, it's like once upon a time there was uh, the saying, I predict one day every city will have at least two or three of these motor vehicles. <laughs> so it's like because everyone will still need horses. But it's, um, I, I think though, if we have a look at, uh, say, ChatGPT, with the exception of that $10 billion investment, there's been from VC firms just in the last few months. Now, a lot of uh, venture capital money has dried up recently. They're actually very... You know, they're not just throwing money at the canvas of the world and with valuations of multiples of revenue because they're not making any profit, as an example. But when you've actually got um, these VC firms are now 
pouring, you know, $10 billion, just over $11 billion, just over the last couple of months into 500 different AI startups. Is this the next FOMO? Is this the next fear of missing out? But, but Will, do you, do you see um, one day the next Googles, Facebooks uh, or Meta, um, Amazons, etc., being, you know, the biggest companies in the world being born out of what's started over the last sort of year or two? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic observation. I reckon right now we are at a, a critical inflection point with AI and its take-up and its ability. Uh, ChatGPT, Chat which I've only uh, seen, I haven't actually used it myself. I've seen it used, it's really we, quite... We, we've used it. Extraordinary. It's, it's actually great. Um, <laughs> it's, it's it, a, yeah, so I think My emails time, are becoming far more succinct now. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, uh, I think we are at a really important inflection point in terms of the ability, again, to progress on a technology basis and, and, and take the world forward. So I would be incredibly surprised if in a decade from now, you know, the top five companies were still the top five companies. Yeah. I'm certain there'd be names there uh, that we'd never heard of. It might not even be in existence today. Well, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Someone will come along and disrupt in some way. Uh, and, in, you know, it, we've seen this with great ideas born out of what seemed to be so innocuous. And it just turns into this behemoth. Well, that's um, what I said, you know, Google and Facebook disrupted the normal print media in respect to advertising. So yeah. whereas actually it's actual targeted advertising rather than shotgun. You know, so when a radio station comes in and says, well, our demographic at this time of the day is this, is that your demographic you want? We'll sell you 15-second slots. Yeah. So whereas, of course, on Facebook we can say, you know, we want uh, males, uh, middle-aged males in uh, with Greek heritage, you know, so who and are economists, who are, who are economists, and they haven't seen a picture of you. Oh, you're on our website, actually. <laughs> so it's, um, but the, you know, and that's our target market, and it would specifically target, you know, uh, the Mavs of the world. But the, I think the, when you actually have a look at it, there'd is, be a lot of food ads, I imagine. <laughs> Yeah, probably me too. <laughs> it's um, the if you have a look though, what the potential of what ChatGPT has done is, it's taken away that advertising revenue stream from Google. There's no ads on it, of course, at the moment. And obviously, they have to make money, so I'm just assuming it'll be a paid service, a subscribed service. But you've got all the ads where Google, Meta, etc., all make their money on advertising. So does ChatGPT take that away? So I did one, I showed Jamie an example the other day. I asked a question to ChatGPT, it was a legal question. It came up with the answer. Then I went to Google to see if the answer was correct. Uh, and the answer was. Uh, that's impressive. Yeah, and that, that's, but I didn't have to get inundated with uh, five legal firms' adverts yeah. uh, prior to actually asking that question or find out. I just asked Oh, yeah, it. I see. Yeah, so, so I did, I, all that advertising revenue was not in front of my face. It's impressive that it's done that because I would have thought in the early stages it would lack nuance. Yes. Um, but in, in the instance you've described, that, that, is, that is even more advanced than I expected it would be. So yeah. But, that, but that's, that's the example where the, they now is this form of AI, because it's language-based AI, is this form of AI now the new disruptor to the Googles and Metas of the world, the biggest companies in the world today, yeah. whereas they were the big disruptors to 
or the advertisers and you know mainstream media as yeah. an example as well so that's my thoughts on it anyway i don't know what you think oh, I, I, no I, I think we're on the same page here now we um, have to find that company that we can go and put 10 grand in today that'll be worth 10 billion <laughs> so it's uh, in well, a few years as time as soon as you let me know i'll be there i was hoping you could tell us <laughs> 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 the unfortunate thing though Mav is we'd look at those companies and say it doesn't make sense to us and it's not making any money because this is one of the things I mean VC firms they don't like their cash burn anymore I mean, there's still a lot of money floating around but they just don't want cash burns anymore they want to see results no and, and I think they're going to be uh, more assiduous in the way they go ahead in recycling their yeah. capital yeah uh, and, and the use they put that to. So yeah. I think the world is very much changing and going forward, having you know money actually costs something effectively and yeah. you must pay a, a return that's actually commensurate with the risk that you're taking. Um, you know, it, it, you've, you've really, and it's easy in the past where people see rates near zero and risk-free rates near zero. Well, okay, maybe I'll throw some funds in this direction I don't think that's going to be as readily available yeah. over the next decade very true in closing Merv I would like to thank you for coming in and doing this uh, this podcast with me today a few weeks ago we had Jamie interview a young gent by the name of Ty who uh, works for organisation Loop but he's very big in 3.0 and uh, the blockchain and as a result of that I sat out of that one because I had no idea what they were talking about, I had a general idea and as a result of today when we're talking about the economy Jamie has sat well out of this one as well because he doesn't like, he just says I'm not I'm not interviewing on this one so because he is the star interviewer without a doubt so Mav thank you for coming in, listeners now get to when I do mention you know our uh, economists uh, as part of Evergreen Consultants they have now got to hear your voice as well. Well thanks for having me and it's been a pleasure. Thanks Mav. Kofkin Bond Podcast is a product from Kofkin Bond & Co, which we are an authorised representative of Can Financial. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of the Kofkin Bond Podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decision, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkin Bond website, or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkin Bond & Co. and the hosts of the Kofkin Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.